we're excited about this book in terms of the way it challenges and encourages and strengthens us. And right now, as we turn our focus towards your word, I want to ask you that you would do all of those things. Would you strengthen? Would you encourage? Would you sharpen? Would you confront? Would you breathe new faith and new life into us? God, I want to ask you is that everything you have in store for today that you want to communicate to us, would you please do so? And would you give us ears to hear? Amen. Amen. Well, the local swimming pool close to where I grew up had a huge diving board, maybe not quite as large as the diving board that will appear on the screens behind yet. Not quite Olympic standard, but it was high nonetheless. Whenever I went swimming as a child, there would always be a queue of people waiting to use the diving board. I used to watch all of my friends wait in line until their turn came. I then listen as they excitedly told me about how incredibly amazing the experience was. But I just couldn't bring myself to do it. I couldn't muster up the courage to join in. It looked incredibly high to me. I'd done a full risk assessment in my mind and concluded I was probably better off keeping my distance. My friends, all the time, they would try and encourage me to do it. But I'd churn out the usual excuses, I don't feel like it today, it's no big deal, don't worry about me, I'm, I'm just fine, just swimming lengths. But all the time, I was secretly envious. I'd watch all my friends having fun, and inwardly, I wanted to join in, but just taking that step was one step too far for me. Until one day, I decided I had to face my fears head on, I'd overcome them, and I would take the leap. just had to do it. And so I joined the end of the queue. It went all the way down the side of the pool, must have been at least 30 people in front of me. But with an ever-increasing sense of dread, I watched as one by one the people in front of me climbed the ladder and dived into the water, and it wasn't long before there were more people behind me than in front of me. And all the time, people were jostling and trying to push in and desperate to get to the front of the queue, but not me. I'm taking my time. I'm still thinking this one through. But the momentum, it kept pushing me forward until finally it was my turn. I pulled myself up that final step and out onto the board of doom. You ever feared something that seemed so bad when you were a long way away, but when you actually got there, it wasn't so bad after all? This wasn't like that. It was infinitely worse. It actually looked a lot higher when you were standing on the board. And the pool suddenly looked a whole lot smaller. You know the kind of thoughts that go through your mind? What if I dive and miss the pool altogether? If I do that and I dive head first, that will be the end of me. At least if I jump, I'll only break my legs, but I'm not sure if I want that either. A whole lot of thoughts can flash through your mind in a very short space of time when you're facing death. <laughs> Have you ever feared something so much that you've actually wet yourself? I didn't wet myself. It, it was bad, but not that bad. Anyway, I slowly made my way right to the edge of the board. And you know what it's like? Everyone behind you is yelling, come on, get a move on, we're waiting, just jump. They don't realize that I'm actually protecting them from what's to come. 
I'm saving their lives. But they're trying to rush me, and I'm blocking out the noise. And I start to think, why should I choose the path of everyone else? I do not have to conform. I don't have to be pressed into the world's mold. I don't have to do this. So I turn around and try to make my way down the ladder to safety. Bad move. You know that kid at your school who no one messed with? The the one who always seemed to derive pleasure from other people's pain? In my school, he was called Adam Stokes, or Stokesy to his mates. I wasn't one of his mates. And that's who it was who was behind me in the queue. I say to him, excuse me, Adam, can I get past you? He goes, there's only one way down from here. And he adds, you can either do it alone or with help. I considered the help that he was offering, and on reflection, I decided to go it alone. My heart, all the time, was pounding against my chest. I took a deep breath. And another one, and I jumped. I wanted a scream, but that would have involved having control over my functions. And I'll tell you later how it all ended. I wonder how many of you hear stories like that one of great exploits of faith and bravery, (laughs) and then you're presented with a moment of opportunity, and you're paralyzed with fear and doubt. Sometimes it can seem as though the challenges in front of us are so incredibly overwhelming. And I don't know about you, but I don't naturally have that courage DNA that steps out there the whole time. But I do think that life has this strange way of setting you in a certain direction where your only course of action ends up being to move forward, however scary that seems. That's certainly how it was for the character that we're studying through this term. Certainly how it was for Esther in the passage we're going to be looking at today. This young girl, Esther, who, as we've seen in previous weeks, became queen pretty much on the basis of her looks. She ends up becoming one of the unlikeliest heroines in all of the Bible. So what I want us to do today is explore together how she became a person of courageous faith. We're going to answer the question, how does God do this? How does God form people like that? How does he do it in your life and in my life? How does God create enduring, overcoming, tenacious faith in our lives? Let me just fill you in on the story so far. In 538 BC, the Jews who were exiled in Persia, they were allowed to return to Jerusalem to start rebuilding their temple. But many of the exiles, they were reluctant to leave the relative security of Persia. Persian Empire, it was huge. And the capital city, Susa, which was located pretty much on the current borders between Iraq and Iran, it was inhabited by thousands of Jews. It's against this backdrop that the whole story of Esther unfolds. It all begins with a Persian king, a guy called Xerxes, decreeing that he wanted a new queen. So a search begins for the most beautiful woman in the whole empire. And as chance would have it, although she was a poor Jewish orphan, Esther was chosen. 
She was named the new queen because of her extraordinary beauty. But all the time, Esther kept quiet about being a Jew. She didn't reveal her Jewishness to anyone. She kept it secret. Meanwhile, the king's right-hand man, an evil egomaniac named Haman, he was hatching a plot to murder every Jewish man, woman, and child in the entirety of the Persian Empire. And all because Esther's cousin Mordecai had refused to bow down to him one day on the steps of the king's court. And to the bewilderment of everyone in the capital city, Haman somehow manages to manipulate the king into making a royal decree to have every Jew annihilated. At stake here were the lives of hundreds of thousands, or as some commentators argue, potentially millions of God's people. They're far from home. There's no prospect of a return. A day has been set in the calendar for them to die. And quite understandably, they are pretty traumatized by the whole thing. It seems like God has abandoned them. In fact, as we saw a bit last time, the book of Esther is one of only two books in the whole Bible where God isn't ever mentioned. It's as though he's completely deserted his people. As we also saw last time, his apparent silence doesn't imply absence. His hiddenness isn't abandonment. He is still working out his purposes, even when it looks like he's nowhere to be seen. I want us to pick up the story in chapter 4. We'll start reading in verse 1. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, There was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. Just pause there. You need to understand, one of the cardinal rules of Persian etiquette was that the king should never be disturbed by anything or anyone. And so any demonstration of grief, it was kept strictly outside the palace walls. But even though the king was pretty much insulated from Mordecai's distress here, others would certainly have noticed, and they did. Verse 4 tells us that when Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he wouldn't accept them. And Esther summoned Hathach, one of the king's eunuchs, assigned to attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. Just to explain, at this point, Esther, she has no knowledge of the king's decree to wipe out the Jews. She's completely isolated inside the palace. It's as though she's cut off from all the events outside the palace walls. That's why she sends one of the eunuchs to go and find out the reason for Mordecai's distress. Verse 6, Hathach went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city, right in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money that Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury 
for the destruction of all the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to urge her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Hathach went back and reported to Esther all that Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that he be put to death. The only exception to this is for the king to extend the gold scepter to him and spare his life. But you need to understand, 30 days have passed since I was even called to go to the king. I'm speculating here. But I don't think it was actually fear that motivated Esther's response at this point, so much as confusion. I mean, how would her death bring about mercy for her people? You see, for her, even as the wife of the king, to go uninvited before him, it was pointless. It was like committing suicide. She'd be flinging herself on his mercy, and since 30 whole days had gone by since the king had asked for her, she was hardly flavor of the month. What's more, the king isn't particularly crazy about people questioning the way he does his job. Previous queen, she had the guts to stand up to him. She ended up being banished, never to be seen again. You kind of understand Esther concluding that this wasn't really the best course of action. But verse 12, when Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. He's saying, you're in this too. Esther, if you go into the presence of the king, well, you may well die. But even if you don't, you may die anyway. In fact, if you think about it, sooner or later, we're all going to die. I mean, that's just the way the world works. But whether your death is meaningful or meaningless is up to you. And then come these magnificent words in verse 14. And who knows, but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. I love Mordecai's answer here. First of all, because he acknowledges the complete sovereignty of God. Mordecai's saying that regardless of what happens to them personally, God will ultimately come through for his people. He won't allow his people to be wiped out because he's sovereign. Despite appearances, he is in control. One way or the other, deliverance will come. But I also love Mordecai's reply because he acknowledges human responsibility as well. Deliverance will come from somewhere But right now, Esther, it's as though all fingers are pointing directly at you. Esther, 
you are the only Jew in the entire Persian Empire who has even a remote shot at having a personal audience with the king. Do you think it's by random chance that you are the queen of Persia? Surely God has put you in this position for a reason. Esther, think about it. For five years, you have wondered why you have to be the queen of Xerxes. You've had to deal with the isolation and the restrictions and all the regulations. It's as though you've had to walk around on eggshells so as not to do anything to upset him. You've had him married to a guy who indulges himself with a different woman every night. You've been wondering, what have I done to deserve this? Why does God allow this kind of thing to happen to me? Esther, can't you see? Suddenly, it's all becoming very clear. This is why you're here. It's as though the fate of the whole nation, the fate of all the people of God, rests in your hands. You haven't been brought to this point in your life for the sake merely of accumulating a wardrobe full of designer clothes and precious jewelry and exotic fragrances. You haven't been brought to this point simply to become the most desirable and attractive woman in the kingdom for a little while. You haven't been brought to this point for any of the reasons that this foolish king thinks you have. You've been brought to this point by none other than God himself. You've been brought to this moment to work for justice. You've been brought to this moment to spare God's people from immense suffering. You've been brought to this point to be part of God's overarching plan to redeem the world. So right now, you've got a choice to make. Will you step up and fulfill your destiny? If you say no, if you miss this, you miss the whole purpose of your existence. Who knows? But that you have come to the royal position for such a time as this. Now, because we're familiar with how this story maps out. We perhaps think the answer to this question is obvious. Duh! Of course you've come to the throne for such a time as this. I mean, it's obvious. I mean, why else would Esther be in this position of royalty except that God had placed her there for a purpose? I want you to think about it. Given the nature of Esther's rise to prominence through, at best, an ethically doubtful marriage to someone who shared none of her beliefs, and through concealing everything distinctively Jewish about herself for five whole years in order to fit in with the people around her, surely the question is real. Has God really put her in this position? It's as if someone who's risen right to the top of the corporate ladder through various shady manipulations of the books and in the process just hasn't been around the church a whole lot because they're too busy or too tired or in reality just can't really be bothered. Uh, And also they've completely abandoned their family along the way for the sake of their work. As if you'd say to them, now God has put you in this position 
I want you to stand up in that board meeting for your face over some crucial issue. The natural question for someone like that would surely be, well, would God really choose to use someone like me? I mean, after all I've done, all I've failed to do, I don't think so. But the answer in Esther's case is yes. God still works through the lives of sinners. And I think God would want to get that message through to some of you today. You might not feel as though you are in a great place with God right now. You might feel like your faith hasn't got much of a look-in in your work life, or in your student life, or perhaps in your family life. In fact, the people around you all week would be shocked to find out you're a Christian. If they found out you were here in this room right now, they would be amazed. But by the grace of God, who knows but that you are in the position you are for such a time as this. I think Esther got this message loud and clear. Verse 15, Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids, we will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. It's like all of a sudden, Esther is woken up to what she needs to do. But she also recognizes her need for the help of God. She can't do this just in her own strength. And so she calls for all God's people across the whole city to fast. And for three whole days, they beseech God together for their deliverance and for him to spare Esther's life as she approaches the king. Now up until this point, Esther has obediently followed all of Mordecai's instructions. But now it's as though the mandate has passed on to her to lead. And so in verse 17 we see that for the very first time Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. Over the years, I've observed that it's often the case that people don't go looking for leadership. Some people do, but a lot of people don't go looking for leadership. They simply wish to stay under the radar and quietly get on with their lives. But then it's as though circumstances are thrust on them that force them to take the initiative. And in those circumstances, my observation is very often a leader is born. That's certainly what we see with Esther. Almost from nowhere, she finds the courage to suddenly take the necessary risks to do the right thing. And she entrusts her fate to God regardless of the outcome. If I perish, I perish. Again, I believe there are a number of people here today who need to step out in faith. For whatever reason, you have held back from taking a lead, whether that's in your job, or in the church, or perhaps in your family. Maybe you've disqualified yourself. Maybe you've been too fearful. 
maybe you're just not interested. I mean, it sounds too much like hard work for me. But it's like God has maneuvered you to the edge of the diving board. Everything in you wants to turn around and walk away. I believe today God is calling some of you to find the courage and dive in. Now the question is, where does the courage come from? Where did Esther get this courage? And perhaps more importantly for us, how can we have this kind of courage in our lives? How do we get the kind of courage that enables us to take risks? And not just any risk, not just the jumping off the diving board kind of risk, but meaningful risk, necessary risk, the kind of risk that's willing to put our lives on the line for God. You know, history is full of examples of people who courageously risked everything out of a desire to make a difference for God in their generation. Talking about the kind of risk that led William Tyndale to be burnt at the stake for illegally translating the Bible into the English language and then distributing it, to, distributing it to common people. So the likes of you and me, we have the Bible in our hands today. I talk about the kind of risk that led Martin Luther to stand up to the crown and the Catholic Church and preach justification by grace through faith. I'm talking about the kind of risk that led William Wilberforce to stand up to the might of the British Parliament and tell them that slavery is downright wrong. The kind of risk that led Hudson Taylor to bring the gospel to the unknown interior of China. The kind of risk that led Jim Elliot, a guy in his 20s, to literally give his life to bring the good news of Jesus to the Orkan people of Ecuador. The kind of risk that led his young widow, Elizabeth, to return to those very people who had slaughtered her husband and offer them forgiveness. Now, for every person that those kinds of stories inspire, there will be a few in this room right now, there are a number of others who are put off by them because they seem completely out of reach. But what I want you to see is that this risk-taking faith is actually for all of us not just limited to people who read, we read about in the Bible, not just limited to people in the pages of history. It'll look different for each one of us. But God calls all of us to step out of our own comfort zones and take risks for Him. Talking about the kind of risk that perhaps tells, uh, calls you, leads you, to tell your course mates about Jesus, knowing it could label you a freak, through your whole time as a student. It's the same kind of risk that leads you to refuse to follow the unethical practices encouraged by your boss, knowing that ultimately it could cost you your job. It's the kind of risk that leads you to make a stand for purity in a culture that shamelessly values and rewards every kind of perversion, knowing it could lead to isolation, could lead to rejection. And it's the kind of risk that leads you to order your priorities differently to how the world tells you. Knowing that such decisions could lead to lost opportunities, potentially lost friendships. Those are the kinds of risk that every single follower of Jesus is called to take. 
but they often require tremendous courage, courage to be different, courage to stand out from the crowd. So where does that kind of courage come from? How do we get it? How can we find it? I want to very quickly draw a few lessons from the story of Esther before we close. Here's the first one. We find the courage to risk when we embrace the truth that divine sovereignty doesn't eliminate personal responsibility. Somewhat wordy, let me try and unpack it for you. Mordecai's appeal to Esther, I think, is perfect because it reminds us that God is completely sovereign. God is completely in control. But at the same time, that doesn't let us off the hook. Often people will say, because God's sovereign, surely he's just going to save whoever he's going to save. So he doesn't really need me to do anything. He doesn't need me to invite my friends along to the Alpha course. I mean, if he wants to save them, they will make their own way there without me getting involved. If God's in control, if God's sovereign, if God saves who he wants to save, he doesn't need me to hand out those flyers for the guest event with Lex next Sunday. I mean, if people are going to get saved, they will just pitch up by themselves. He doesn't need me to share my faith with my neighbours or my course mates. He doesn't need me to let it be known in my workplace that I'm a Christian. Whether or not I do anything, surely he will get through to them one way or the other. Ever thought like that? Maybe it's true. Maybe the salvation of people you know will come from somewhere else. But maybe... Just maybe, the reason God has put you in the position he has is so that salvation can come through you. You see, we all have a part to play. All of us do. I think Esther's call for a time of fasting reminds us of the very same thing. You know, sometimes people say, well, what's the point of praying if God's will is going to be done anyway. You know that notice earlier about the church prayer meeting calling all of you to gather at St. Francis Hall, 8 o'clock till 9.30 this Tuesday evening. We gather there the first Tuesday of every month. I mean, you're thinking, what's the point? I mean, what's the point of praying if God's will is going to be done anyway? What difference will it make if I'm there or I'm not there? Why should I pray? Why should I fast if at the end of the day God is just going to do what he's going to do? And we tend to apply that same kind of fatalistic logic to other areas of the Christian life as well. If, if God's going to provide, then why should I give? If God's going to meet needs, then why should I sacrifice? If God's going to work, then why do I need to serve? Really, it's kind of like washing our hands of our own personal responsibility. It's letting ourselves off the hook from living the life of faith and courage that God's called us to. Listen, always throughout the Bible, from beginning to end, we find this constant tension between God's sovereignty and our personal responsibility. 
For example, in Psalm 139, verse 16, we read, All the days ordained for me were written in his book before one of them came to be. That's divine sovereignty. God's in control of it all. He's ordained the whole lot. But then we read in Ephesians 5, verse 15, Be careful then how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is, implication, and do it. There's personal responsibility as well. And it's in this context that, like Esther, I believe we too can find the motivation to risk. We need to embrace the fact that divine sovereignty, God being in control of everything, doesn't take away from our own individual, specific, personal responsibility. Quite the opposite. It actually encourages us to act. It frees us to give generously, knowing that God's able to provide all we need. It frees us to pray with confidence and boldness, knowing that God has the answer, God has the power to answer. It frees us to share our faith with others, knowing that God can and will use our words. Do you see, knowing that God is ultimately in control frees us and releases us to step out in faith. That's the first lesson about courage. Here's the second one. We find the courage to risk when we put our confidence, when we put our trust in the goodness of God. I think that's really what Mordecai was encouraging Esther to do. He was reminding her that if she remains silent, then yes, deliverance will come from somewhere else because God is faithful. His character is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's a promise-keeping God who will carry out his good purposes in the world and in your life as well. But if you really believe that, then what have you got to lose? And that's what I think tipped the balance for Esther. That's what I think led her to finally make this decision to appear before the king, despite the huge risks that were involved. I mean, it could cost her her life. If I perish, I perish. But it was a necessary risk. And Esther found the courage to take that risk and do the right thing, knowing that because God's purposes in the world and in her life are very good, Surely she could entrust her fate, entrust her life completely to him, regardless of the outcome. If I perish, I perish. Returning to the diving board story from the beginning, after much coaxing and persuasion and assurances and assistance from Adam Stokes that everything would be okay, I finally took a deep breath and I jumped. And you know what? I survived. I mean, I'm here in front of you today. In fact, I actually quite enjoyed the experience. And to my surprise, I found myself running around the edge of the pool to rejoin the queue to have another go. Now sometimes, as followers of Jesus Christ, to continue this whole swimming pool analogy, we like to hang out at the pool, but we don't really get in it. 
Or if we do, we kind of hang on to the edge because it's safe there. It's secure. We're in control. It's all kind of familiar. And we know that nothing's going to happen to us. No harm will befall us. But who knows what might happen if we actually go out and do something. Who knows what could happen, what could open up if we go out and do something like join the kids club team in Wheelie Castle on a Saturday morning serving that whole community. What might happen if we did decide to invite all of our friends along next Sunday, not just one or two, but all of them. What might happen if we decided to make a public stand for our faith at work or in our tutor group? What might happen if we refused to compromise our purity when someone made some move on us? Or if we decide to take 12 months out to do a voluntary year serving the church here? What might happen? But I'm worried that I could fail. I'm concerned that something bad might happen. Well, yes, something bad might happen. But something a whole lot worse will happen if we don't. Nothing. We won't ever accomplish anything. But if we really trust in the goodness of God, and if we really believe that his purposes in the world and in our lives are very good, then we can leave the edge of safety. And we can get out to where the water is a little bit deeper. And we can take those risks and we can entrust our fate to him, put our life in his hands, regardless of the outcome. And if I perish, I perish. Don't know about you, but I would much rather perish doing something meaningful for God with my life than live a meaningless existence just clinging onto the edge of the pool. Which brings us to our third lesson. We find the courage to risk when we look to the community of God's people for the strength we need to face the challenges ahead of us. When Esther called all the Jewish people living in the city of Susa to this three-day fast before she then approached the king, she shows that she understood two things very well. First of all, she understands there is strength in numbers. Second, she understands there is tremendous power in prayer. And when God's people are united in prayer, then you need to watch out, because something miraculous is likely to happen. And that's exactly what Esther was counting on here. A miracle. The supernatural intervening hand of God on her behalf and on behalf of all her people. But if she was going to look to God for a miracle, she wasn't going to do it alone. If she was going to look to God for the courage to approach the king and for the wisdom to know how best to approach him, she wasn't going to do that alone either. She was going to look to the community of God's people to stand with her and help. One way or the other, they were going to do it together. Now, this is one of the reasons it's so important for those of us who are followers of Jesus to create strong relationships with other believers in the context of the local church. You see, 
God doesn't intend for us to work out our faith and to take these courageous risks alone. He set the whole thing up so we get to look to the church for the mutual strength and encouragement and the prayer and the wisdom that comes from those relationships. And when we don't create those strong relationships, then essentially we're making a declaration of independence. We're saying, I can do this myself. And maybe you can. Maybe you can't. But wisdom's going to say, you know what? There's a whole lot at stake here. And I'm going to need all the help I can get. And developing those strong relationships and looking to the church for that help is a declaration of dependence. Dependence on God, interdependence on one another. And it's in that context, that context of depending on God and being interdependent on one another, that we can find the courage to do things we'd never have imagined we'd end up doing. I want you to know that this church, Church Central, is a safe place for you to step out and take risks and grow in your faith. There are people in this church right now who are taking huge faith strides. People who are doing things for God that just a few months ago they weren't doing. And for me, I get tremendous joy just having a little bit of insight in what's going on in some of your lives and seeing how you are growing in your faith and you are being bold and you are being courageous. But there's still plenty of room for more, much more. It's in the context of community that courageous people are formed. And that brings us to our fourth and final lesson from this passage We find the courage to risk when we remember that each one of us has a unique place in God's design for this world. You know, the reason you were born in this particular point in history and the reason why you live right now in this particular country and in your particular locality And the reason why you are who you are is because you have a unique place in God's vast, eternal, overarching design for the world. You say, well, sounds very impressive, but do you have any biblical evidence to back that up? Well, funnily enough, yes, I have. If you look at the screens behind me, Acts 17, verse 24 says this, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and he doesn't live in temples built by hands. And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything, because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And get this, he determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. And God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. It's like God set the time for you to live. 
And he set the place for you to live because he has a reason for you to live. He wants you here, not just to bump around randomly doing your own thing, but to seek him and to know him and to walk with him and to live out your days on this earth serving him out of the uniqueness of who he has made you to be. Each one of us is created by God with different personalities, and different gifts, and different talents, and different passions. But not just for the purpose of getting along in the world. God wants to use our unique mix of gifts to serve him, and to serve others, and to further advance his purposes in this world. It can be a tough call at times. But when you accept the challenge, you never know what doors he is going to open up for you. You never know what opportunities are going to come along. You never know how he's going to use you or where he's going to place you and why. And although you may end up taking a very different course in life to the one you had imagined, and although it won't necessarily be the easiest option, if you keep looking to God... And if you keep trusting him, you will know with certainty that God in his providence has placed you in this position for such a time as this. That is certainly what Esther discovered. For five whole years she must have wondered, Lord, why am I here? Why am I in this place? Is this it? Is this all there is? She had no idea what God was really preparing her for. And she could never have anticipated how he was really positioning her strategically for an absolutely critically role in history. And you know, a bit like Esther, we can perhaps sometimes find ourselves wondering, Lord, why am I at this place in my life? Lord, I feel so stuck I just don't understand what's going on. Is this it? Is this all there is? During those times, our job is simply to stay close to God and be faithful to Him. Because we never really know what He's doing behind the scenes of our life and how He's positioning us and preparing us and equipping us for something very specific in the bigger picture of all his plans. Something that eventually will require courage and risk on our part. And when that time comes, as it will for all of us, we find the courage to risk when we embrace the truth, first of all, that divine sovereignty doesn't eliminate our own personal responsibility. We find the courage to risk, secondly, when we put our trust in the goodness of God. We find the courage third to risk when we look to the church for the strength we need to face the challenges ahead of us. And finally, we find the courage to risk when we remember that each one of us does have a unique place in God's design for this world.